Welcome to J Life with Daniel. I'm your host, Rabbi Daniel Levine. Okay, well, I have spent the last week in Israel, and I am currently talking to you all from a hotel smack in the middle of Jerusalem, about a five-minute walk outside of the walls of the old city. And I can tell you after thinking about, reading about, talking about, debating about, teaching about Israel, especially over the past 85 days since the tragedy, the massacre of October 7th, 2023, it is quite surreal to be here. And I'm excited to share with you all of my preliminary and raw thoughts about everything that I've seen, both the good and the bad, the positive, the optimistic and the pessimistic. I'm sure I'll have more time to develop these thoughts, to process this. One of the ways in which I was speaking to a friend about just witnessing the entire society here and all the examples that we're going to run through is that on a personal level, I feel like since October 7th, because of my job, because of my constant need to be talking about and teaching about and helping students and helping community members truly process the traumas of what happened and the aftermath and the data and the facts and the wider debate about the war and everything that everybody who follows either my podcast or my teaching or just talks to me consistently knows that I talk about, I built up some armor. And the way in which I processed since October 7th was to almost become a bit numb to just the scale of the tragedy. The fact that there were more Jews killed on October 7th than any day in Jewish history since the Holocaust. And I developed a bit of a numbness because, again, I had to teach a class here, run a conversation here, write an article here, record a podcast here. And sadly, when you repeat horrors and tragedies over and over again, you get used to it and you almost learn to live with it. And that very much happened until I got to Israel. And then immediately the numbness melted away and I came face to face with the reality, with the people here, with what happened. And so these thoughts are going to be a little bit raw. I tried to organize them ahead of time, but it's also very late at night here. We've been having very full days. And so hopefully I'll have more time later on to develop each of these ideas a little bit further. But here is what I have so far. There's an impending sense, and I've I felt this in some way since October 7th, but coming here has really made me double down on this idea, highlight it, put it in bold, that there's a sense that for the last two generations of Jewish history, really since the Holocaust, that we've been living in sort of almost a post-Jewish historical age, right? One could imagine Jewish history almost ending in 1948 or 1967. One could imagine the ups and downs of Jewish history, especially the tragedies, especially the anti-Semitism that students, that scholars of Jewish history know has sadly been commonplace and ubiquitous throughout our history, that we got into some sentiment, whether implicit or explicit, that in the Jewish community, whether it be in Israel or America, is almost living in a post-historical era where the horrors of medieval, the horrors of pre-modern, the horrors of the 20th century anti-Semitic trends that we've seen throughout the world and throughout history, that that was history. That happened a long time ago. Those are things that you commemorate on Yom HaShoah on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Those are things that you commemorate on Jewish communal fast days. But now, now we're safe. Now in 2023, Jews are split between America and Israel. There's about 52 to 55% of Jews in the world live in Israel. About 40 to 45% of Jews in the world live in North America, depending on which polling data you trust. And there's this wide sense that Jews were safe.
And October 7th, at least for me and what I've seen and talking to people throughout not just Israeli society, but the Jewish world, as I'm privileged to be here with a group of interdenominational, both rabbis and rabbinic students, is there's a sentiment of being thrusted back into Jewish history. All of a sudden, when I think about the Jewish state of being in the Middle Ages, the Jewish state of being in the 19th century with the pogroms, the 20th century, with all the horrors that we know happened, instead of now merely thinking about that as history that now we've moved on from, when we delve into the details of October 7th, that could very well be its own genre. I'm almost imagining if October 7th had happened in the 1100s or 1200s or 1300s, there might very well be a unique Jewish fast day that rabbis would have set up to commemorate the horrors of the day. That's how much of a deal this was for the Jewish psyche. And so there's this wider notion of being thrusted back into Jewish history. And I think if you are a part of the Jewish community, whether you're a big part of the Jewish community, whether you're not Jewish and just interested on the internal mechanics of the Jewish community, this is going to be a inflection point when we look back in the Jewish history books. In 30, 40, 50 years, when you're talking to your children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren, about the arc of Jewish history, both in Israel and in America, I have no doubt that the year 2023 and the year 2024 are going to be pivotal inflection points. What exactly they'll inflect and change into? I have some guesses. I'm happy to run through some hypotheses. I'm sure my podcast will be full of many conversations with people who are thinking about this later on. But we know that the Israel that existed before October 7th is not going to be the Israel that existed after. The American Jewish community, the diasporic Jewish community that existed before October 7th is not going to be the same diasporic Jewish community we saw after October 7th. You know, even just thinking about this from a personal perspective, I I landed in Israel last Thursday into the airport in Lod. It's a city a couple miles away from Tel Aviv. And immediately, the first thing that happened to us when stepping off the plane is a red alert or a tzeva adom, as they call it in Israel, went off. And what that means is Hamas was indiscriminately shooting rockets into, of course, civilian areas in Lod. They were aiming at the airport. And so rather than get off the plane after a 14-hour flight and run to the bathroom, maybe brush my teeth, I crammed in with a group of hundreds of other people that just got off the flight into a bomb shelter where we stayed for about 20, 25 minutes with, again, very little idea of what was going on. People had different apps. People were texting people. And then all of a sudden, only when it was clear did we resume our normal lives. I experienced one other siren, and I'll talk a little bit more about our trip to the south. I had the privilege of going to Kfar Aza, one of the kibbutzim, quite a liberal kibbutz, by the way. This was a peace-loving kibbutz that I'll talk about in a few minutes. But we had a siren also go off. And again, instead of going to lunch, as we should have, we ended up cramming again into a bomb shelter with dozens of other people waiting there for 15 minutes until getting the go-ahead. This is the normal situation. This was considered normal in Israel before October 7th in many southern communities. Living side-by-side with Hamas, a group, in which I've spent a lot of time on the podcast going into their ideology before. And I don't think Israel is going to tolerate this any longer. 
Israel after October 7th is not the same Israel before October 7th. No longer will Israel, no longer, I think, will majority of the Jewish world stand by while simply letting people lob rockets at our civilians, letting people come into our neighborhoods indiscriminately attacking civilians. And again, this is a new iteration in the course of Jewish history, in the course of Zionist thought. We heard stories, again, the stories of heroicism are what is striking me the most, right? When we talk about tragedies in Jewish history, whether they be ancient, medieval, pogroms in Eastern Europe, the Holocaust, almost all of the stories present the Jews as victims. Because of course the Jews were victims. And in October 7th, sure, the Jews were victims again. But that's not how Israelis are thinking about the story. And this is really important to understanding the psychology of what's going on right now. Israelis are presenting the people in October 7th, the Jews who were butchered by Hamas as heroes. Because as the stories are coming out, as we're talking to more and more people that have family, that have friends, people who were even themselves present either at the Nova Festival or any of these various kibbutzim, is a story of heroic bravery. We heard the story of a grandfather who immediately left his house in Tel Aviv, grabbed a handgun, this person was in his late 60s, and drove all the way down to the south in an attempt to rescue his grandchildren and children who were under siege by Hamas terrorists. And this old man, right, this grandfather, neutralized four terrorists on the way to successfully rescuing his great-grandchildren who were hiding in a safe room. These were children being afraid of Hamas terrorists. We heard a story of a Magin David Adom, the Israeli National Ambulance Service driver, who, again, on October 7th, as they started getting calls, he wasn't on duty, but he immediately took his ambulance and started driving south, again, towards all of the chaos, towards all of the bloodshed. And he was immediately got into a firefight with Hamas terrorists, again, while he was in the ambulance. The ambulance lights were on, and of course, he was shot through the windshield and killed while in his ambulance, showing, again, the, the sadism of Hamas, but on the other hand, showing the bravery of this brave man, a father of three kids, who said, I'm not going to sit idly by. I'm not going to present myself as a victim. I'm going to act. No longer are the Jews, right? This was the whole Zionist philosophy. No longer are the Jews going to be a subject going to be a subject that wider forces act upon it, but Jews are going to stand up for ourselves. Jews are going to be people that have self-autonomy. Jews are going to claim power. Again, not total corrupting power. I've talked about this before on the podcast, but power that ensures that no longer will Jews be able to be butchered by the dozens, by the hundreds, by the thousands, without being able to stand up for ourselves. And time and time again, as I'm talking to people in this country, there's actually a deep sense both of tragedy, but also of heroic optimism. Israeli society mobilized on October 7th, 2023. And that mobilization proved to everybody in this country, to everybody in the surrounding Middle East, and to everybody in the world that... The Jews of 2023 are not the Jews of 1923 and are not the Jews of 
11.23, that no longer will there ever be a time in Jewish history where people will be able to murder, where people will be able to harass, where people will be able to sexually assault. I don't know if anybody saw the New York Times article documenting sexual abuse on 10-7. I highly recommend it with all of the warnings in the beginning that it is a very tough read, but I do think it's important. And no longer will Jews be able to be just acted upon without any say of their self-autonomy. This is the change in the psyche. And it's not going to make people happy. And perhaps I'll get to this in another podcast, but I think Jews that are living in the wider Western world outside of Israel, certainly Jews in Europe, but of course also Jews in America and Canada, we are in for a long next couple of years because the philosophy and the psyche, I believe, of the Jewish world has changed, but the philosophy and the psyche of the wider world has not changed. And I'll talk about this in about 15 minutes. And so stay tuned. The next thing that I wanted to see, and it's actually something that surprised me. And so again, I'm being a little bit more raw with you on the podcast. Usually I uh, try to be a little bit more well-polished with notes here, but I wrote down a couple of bullet points and figured I'd have enough material and just sort of let the uh, words flow freely. Everybody who knows me knows that I'm relatively liberal. I'm not somebody who's super into fighting. I've shot a gun once in my life a couple of years ago because a friend of mine who I was camping with happened to have a gun. I've always been very uncomfortable around weaponry. But landing in Israel last week was a moment of introspection, of being so happy, and I can't really explain this emotion, being so at ease and just breathing a sigh of relief landing in Israel, seeing a population of soldiers and of people in Israel that are all carrying these massive guns. Now, I know that for many people here are a little bit shocked to say that, generally landing into a country and seeing every single place I've gone, there's been machine guns everywhere by 18 to 40-year-olds, because again, the whole country is in reserves right now, in the IDF uniform, holding machine guns and other types of guns, right? Guns are now, they've always been quite ubiquitous in Israel, but now they're even more ubiquitous. And in the past, I've felt, yeah, they're, they're necessary to keep us safe, but I'm always very uncomfortable around guns. And whenever I see groups of people coming here, you know, them each having a giant submachine gun, okay, maybe that's the necessary reality, but I never really felt any deep pride in seeing that until this trip to Israel. And this isn't just some blind militarism. I don't like war. I wish the situation in Gaza had played out other ways. I deeply do. But given everything we know about Jewish history, and if you're somebody who didn't grow up with a deep sense of Jewish history, if you're somebody that didn't grow up, say, commemorating Tisha B'Av, the Jewish communal day of mourning, or Yom HaShoah, the, the Israeli Holocaust Memorial Day, if you're somebody who didn't grow up with a deep sense of what the blood libel actually meant for Jews in the 1100s, what the idea that Jews killed Jesus actually meant for Jews in the 1200s, what the Crusades meant for the Jews in the Middle Ages, 
what the idea that Jews are either socialists or capitalists meant for Jews in the 1900s. If you were somebody who didn't grow up with a deep sense of the rootedness of anti-Semitism, really all throughout the Western, if not wider world, then you probably won't be able to understand my pride in seeing guns everywhere. Because the one difference between October 7th and all of these other times in Jewish history, the Chalmanetsky massacres in the late Middle Ages, the pogroms, the Kishinev pogrom, the Farhud in Iraq, the expulsion really of Jews from the entire Arab world in the late 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with any of these examples, Google is your friend. But if you didn't grow up with a deep sense of understanding the hatred of Jews and the effects of anti-Semitism on Jews throughout history, mixed with the fact that Jews were not allowed to defend ourselves for most of Jewish history, whether Jews were under Christian or Islamic rule, Jews were not allowed to have weaponry. In many situations in Europe, in the 1900s, Jews were not allowed to have weaponry. For most of Jewish history, Jews were simply expected to be bullied, and if not bullied, tortured, and if not tortured, then massacred, and if not massacred, luckily, hopefully, we can get away with just being expelled from countries without the pillaging that usually came with proliferation of anti-Semitism throughout history. And so landing in Israel and walking through the streets and seeing young men, young women, older men, older women, a society that's mobilized, ready to fight, understands what they're fighting for, makes me know that there's not going to be another time in Jewish history that has weeks, if not months, if not years, of the systematic oppression of Jews without anybody standing up for ourselves. October 7th was one day, and it was a horrible day, and it was a tragic day. But guess what? If you take the several years of the Holocaust and divide that by six million, more Jews were killed every single day over the course of about six years in the late 30s and 40s, 1930s and 1940s, than they were on just one day, October 7th. If October 7th, 2023 had happened at any time in Jewish history before 1948, it wouldn't have been 1,200 Jews that were killed. It would have been 12,000 or 120,000. And so let that idea sink in. That the reality of Zionism, the reason why I'm a Zionist, even though I'm deeply uncomfortable with many of the steps that Israel has made, both historically and politically, and the current government, and I can go on and on, and anybody who doubts that, look through the other episodes in the podcast. There is not an episode I've done about Israel that didn't include a long and even more than healthy dose of criticism. You don't have to look far to see all of my qualms with Israel, Israeli politicians, and Israel policy. But Zionism is not reducible to Israel and Israeli policy. Zionism is the wider meta-idea, the philosophy, that just like all other peoples on earth, Jews deserve the right to defend ourselves in our ancestral homeland. And that is something that gives me pride when I see a society that's actually living up to those ideals, knowing that me, as a Jew, will be safe in the world because of the existence of Israel. 
And this is actually the first time in my life. And don't worry, I'm not about to drop a uh, major bombshell on the podcast. I'd probably have to uh, talk to my wife, Shana, first if I was going to do this. But this was really the first time in, in really in my life that I strongly saw the, the urge or they strongly felt the urge to actually live in Israel. All my life, I've loved Israel. I spent a year in Israel, a year and a half in Israel when I was 18. I've been to Israel probably 40 times in my life and I love it here. But I've always felt very at home in America. I still do feel at home in America. I actually hope to do an upcoming episode on the future of American Judaism after October 7th. So stay tuned, get excited for that. But I've felt for the first time a deep ease, and not just ease, but an allure to living here that I've never really felt as strongly before. Because one, this is a society that, again, is indicative of everything I've discussed before. But it's also a society where I don't have to constantly explain my own existence. One of the problems that I've been seeing in the West, especially on campus, but in other places as well, this is a problem that's only going to get worse, so brace yourself for it, is the constant need for Jews to explain ourselves. This has been also true throughout all of Jewish history. All throughout Jewish history, other people have always tried to define us. And I've always tried to ignore our attempt to define ourselves. And this is, again, what we're seeing in the West. So many times I have to have conversations of, no, Judaism is not just a religion. We're an ethnic group. We're a nationality. We're a culture. We also happen to have a religion as a part of that, but Judaism is not really the same as Islam and Christianity. And that's why Israel, yes, is a Jewish state, but not a religious Jewish state, right? You can see all the arguments back and forth, and those are conversations that I expect to have thousands of more within the next year or two. But in Israel, everybody gets it. This isn't a society where I have to walk around with my Jewish identity constantly explaining who I am, what my history is, why I find certain things hateful. And in many ways, and I actually hate to say this, I didn't think this through before I was about to say this, but again, here we go, uh, raw emotions on the podcast here. I can almost understand for the first time why a lot of minority groups in America are moving towards spaces where they only want people of their, you know, insert either gender or race or X here, and specifically want to exclude people on the outside. I don't think that that's healthy for the future of America and liberal democracy, but I do understand it. And it's part of the allure that I'm feeling towards Israel now. It would be easier in some way to be here, to be around people who get it, to be around people who have a deep sense of understanding of Jewish history, of what happens when Jews don't have power, of our Jewish tradition, of Jewish culture, of all these things. And again, this is just, again, some ideas that are coming into play. And this is a fascinating, again, wider interplay to consider. Now, needless to say, the world is not going to like any of this. If we think about this from a more global perspective, and I really invite you to think about this critically from the realm of both history, anthropology, sociology, and religion, And this is not some theory I've come up with. This is the work of many scholars who think about Judaism and Jewish history and what it means from the Jewish image to have switched from that of depraved minority within the wider Christian and Muslim world to strong Zionist, the form of the new Jew. 
is if you think about it, the world does to some extent care about Jews. I genuinely do think the world feels bad when Jews are butchered. The world can commemorate the Holocaust every year. Heck, the world can even feel bad about October 7th. But the image of the Jew in the international image, the image of the Jew very much brought about because of Christianity and Islam, and I'll defend that statement in about a minute, is towards seeing Jews specifically as the victim. Within wider Christian and Islamic theology, religious traditions that were quite literally built on the edifice of Judaism, the existence of Judaism and Jews throughout history issued a major explicit threat to the truth of these secondary traditions. This is not something I'm coming up with. This was stated by Augustine in the 4th century, by medieval church figures, by medieval Islamic thinkers, by contemporary Islamic figures. The very idea that there are Jews around in the world once either Jesus had his second coming to abolish the old Mosaic tradition or Muhammad came and abolished both the Jewish and subsequent Christian prophetic traditions or added to it, the existence of Jews represents an implicit or explicit threat to these traditions because if they are true, why do the Jews, why do the original people of the book not accept these ideas? And so through some interesting philosophy and theology generally started by the Christian world, but then seeping over into the Islamic world, they reconcile that, you know what? Perhaps the reason why the Jews are kept around, specifically the Jews were kept around without power in the much wider hegemonic and powerful Christian empire is because this is actually their punishment. The Jews get to exist, but the Jews specifically get to exist in a sad, in a tortured state. The Jews get to exist as the universal bullied, that the Jews will forever be the victims. And that is specifically the truth claim of Christianity or Islam is because specifically the Jews who were the people who should have accepted these new traditions but didn't, so they'll be kept around for all of eternity in a secondary class, in a tortured status, in one where they have no power. The question of Jewish strength and Jewish autonomy and yes, Zionism is one that is contrary to the entire Western Christian and the entire Islamic image of the Jews. Jews are not supposed to be powerful. Jews are supposed to be at the whims of the Catholic Church. Jews are not supposed to be powerful. Jews are supposed to be dimmies, second-class citizens in the Islamic world where no matter what, whether we're talking about 8th century Baghdad, 12th century Egypt, 18th century Turkey, 20th century Iran— Jews living all throughout the Muslim world were allowed to exist. They even had a certain amount of rights and protections, but only as second-class citizens, only as dhimmis, only as people that knew that they couldn't practice Judaism outside, that the synagogues were not allowed to be as tall as churches, that Jews oftentimes at differing times in different countries would have to wear things to signify that they have the lower status of Jew. So the world can tolerate Jews when we're in a situation of second-class satisfy. But all of a sudden, in the last 70 years of Zionism, of Jewish autonomy, of Jewish strength, this is why you see the world freaking out, because we do not fit into the neatly defined categories that the rest of the world wants to give upon the Jew. And this is the wider ideological fight that I think we are coming into after 2023, after, again, the Jewish people have gone through an additional iteration in our wider history. Now, make no mistake, 2023 will be an inflection point, as I said before. 
And I think the parts of the Jewish community that decide that in this moment they're not going to be with the plurality, with the majority of the Jewish community standing up for our own self-autonomy and protection, I predict within two generations or three generations they will all have assimilated out and left the Jewish community. And no, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic. There's only so long that bland universalism can survive in the wake of a particularistic identity that is constantly under attack. And perhaps the most refreshing thing to see in Israel, and this will be a nice idea to conclude by, is the sheer unity that is ubiquitous throughout this country. If you've been following my podcast for the last two years, the last two years of Israel's politics has been the most divisive that Israel has ever seen. I recorded a podcast less than a year ago where I quoted that Israeli polls were polling at 50% of the country being nervous at a civil war happening within the next couple of years. This was not an overstatement. The, Israel was torn in half about the debates about judicial reform protests. For those who don't know what that is, feel free to look back to many podcasts that I recorded last year. Israel was torn in half about debates about Bibi Netanyahu, about debates between the religious and the secular side. And it's not that these issues have gone away. I do believe these issues are going to come back to some extent after the war in Gaza is won and finished. But these issues are no longer tearing apart the fabric of the country. Israeli society is completely unified, secular and religious. We talk to people from the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox sector, that have been doing everything they can, even though ideologically they don't go to the army, everything they can to help the country. We talk to people from the left-wing sector who just months ago were organizing all of their energy in anti-governmental protests, all of a sudden now helping the Israeli government, helping the IDF conduct its crucial war in Gaza. I talked to a Jewish teenager from Costa Rica, a person who had never been in Israel before. I bumped into him at a shawarma shop in Tel Aviv last week, and I saw him sitting alone, so I sat next to him, and asked him, right, this is not a time for general tourism in Israel. I was able to tell that he was clearly not Israeli from the way that he was talking when he ordered. And so I sat down and I asked him how he ended up in Israel. And he said that he's never been to Israel. He grew up with a slight Jewish identity, but not particularly religious, not particularly knowledgeable. But as soon as October 7th happened, he started receiving anti-Semitic comments from his classmates in Costa Rica. Now, Note this, this was a guy, according to his own testimony to me, he never said anything about Israel. People just happened to know that he was Jewish and he was still receiving anti-Israel, but really anti-Semitic statements and jeers from his classmates. And so what did he do? Rather than sit there as a meek victim and talk about it and complain about it, he decided to get on a plane and come to the south of Israel and help volunteer in the fields to pick avocados and potatoes that the normal workers have fled the country. And so therefore, he can help out the wider Jewish people. We talked to an Israeli Arab, a Palestinian named Mohammed Darwasha, whose own nephew was an ambulance driver, who, again, it's important to note that during the October 7th massacre, Hamas was killing everybody. Babies, elderly men, women, civilian soldiers, Jews, the Druze, Christians, and also Muslims. And so Muhammad Darwasha's nephew was an ambulance driver who also risked his life to help save fellow Israelis, and he was also gunned down by Hamas. 
and we talk to other people from the Israeli Arab, the Palestinian sector that are living here, and they're also talking about a newfound identity of identifying with this country against what they now see to be threats, not just against the Jews in the Middle East, but against the very idea of liberal democracy, whether or not it exists in Israel or around the world. The last image that I just want to end off with, as I was walking through Kfar Aza, one of the kibbutzim that was hit particularly hard, and again, this was a kibbutz where babies were massacred, where bodies were burned whole, where parents were tortured in front of their children. This is all well documented. If this is shocking you, please take some time to do some research. Sadly, the videos are online. If the videos are too emotionally gut-wrenching for you, all of the accounts are online. You can read them. It's really worth it to take the time to understand this horrors, this Nazi-like horrors that Hamas inflicted on Israel on October 7th. But we started to see Sukkot. Now, again, if you remember, October 7th was, was Simchat Torah. This is traditionally the end of the Sukkot holiday. And so it's almost like these kibbutzim have been frozen in time for the last 85 days, still with the existence of Sukkot. It's almost as if the holiday never ended. But if we think about what the sukkah represents, right, if we think back to the values of our tradition, a sukkah has a dualistic meaning. There's no more particularistic of a Jewish symbol than a sukkah. And Sukkot in general is a very strange holiday. We shake around the lulav and etrog, what looks like a giant asparagus and a lemon. We live in little huts outside, right? This is probably, from a ritualistic point of view, the weirdest holiday that Jews have. Yet the entire imagery of a sukkah is one that is outside and open to everybody. And the values, the idea of Sukkot is that of hospitality, that of universalism. And so Judaism constantly has this dialectic between particularism and universalism, and Israel and Zionism are the same way. I strongly believe that Judaism and the Jewish people have a universal mission to bring to the world. We stand for positive values. We stand for the equality of life. We stand for the dignity of life. We stand for the idea that all peoples are equal and deserving of respect. But yet if we focus too much on the universalism and not the particularism, we lose the unique strategies that our people and our religious tradition have come up with over thousands of years to perpetuate these ideas. And so leaving Kfar Aza, talking to the residents there who either experienced or witnessed unspeakable tragedies and seeing the sukkah reminded me of this eternal symbol of hope. The people of Israel are strong. I've seen it firsthand. This is not a society that's in mourning. This is a society that is ready to enter into the post-2023 Israel with their head up, with strength, and with unity. And I believe that given that the majority of my listeners here are American Jews, if American Judaism or if subsets of American Jews are not willing to wake up and answer the call at this moment, I sadly feel like Jewish tradition, the wonderful ship of Jewish tradition that has encountered many tides over the tumultuous multi-thousand year history, will have no choice but to leave them behind.